you remember we gave our left off last week talking about John the Baptist. We will see him a few other times in the gospel. But basically, Luke, who doesn't go chronologically in teaching through his, or writing his book, I'm teaching it. <laughs> but he decides to stop, I think, with uh, John, although we might see a reference or two later, so he can focus on the ministry of Jesus Christ. If you remember, I said John very well could be called the first uh, martyr of the church. He is killed later by the King Herod. What I didn't tell you was some of those other names I shared with you last week. Uh, you can get, I got some of them from MacArthur's uh, commentary on Luke. But if you ever heard of the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's interesting to read. Uh, J.C. Ryle, whom you ought to remember from his book on Holy List last summer, has written a book on uh, Christian martyrs in the UK. And there's books about the Scottish Covenanters. I didn't share with you last week the story of two women in Scotland who were killed for their faith, the two Margarets. One was a lady in, uh, i don't not sure how old she was. She was an older lady. And with her, another Margaret who was a teenage girl. They were both drowned for their faith because they would not agree that King James VI was the head of the church. We can really benefit from reading biographies of people like this and others who have lived <laughs> through persecu persecution. Jim Elliott is a recent martyr for the faith in this past century. Uh, you could read about something called the Korean Pentecost when uh, in Korea in, in the century just past. It was a great revival. Many Christians were persecuted at the time of, uh, of that uh, era. I think it was in the 40s and 50s. It's great to read these things, not because we have a macabre spirit, but we need to know what our faith is all about and some of the heroes of the faith who were willing to give their lives for the preaching of the gospel. There are people like that today in Ukraine and around Ukraine who are willing to give their lives, not just for the freedom that Ukraine wants, but also for uh, the freedom of the gospel. Well, we've left John, sort of, <laughs> we will hear about him later, to go to Jesus Christ. And we're in chapter three. Let me just read two verses to start with. Verse 21, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, 21. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. We'll go past there in a minute. The baptism of Jesus Christ. Why was he baptized? Why is anybody baptized in our church? Or in a Baptist church? <laughs> a good, a good Bible-believing church. Why is anybody baptized? that involves the forgiveness of sins, right? 
This is a sign that we're believers, that we have gone to the Savior for forgiveness of sins. What is Jesus doing being baptized? I ask that reverently. I'm not being crazy here. You know. He said to fulfill all righteousness. Amen. He's fulfilling the scripture. He's doing more than that. He's identifying with sinners. That's what Jesus is doing. What humility. He's already come from heaven. Being born of a woman. The creator being born from a creature. And now he's going to stand with these creatures and be baptized. What a God we serve. What humility this is for God to enter into the water to be baptized. In Matthew's account, uh, we have a, a similar picture of this, but he leaves off the other point I want to make to you here in Luke's account. When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, again, what's he praying for? Is he asking for his sins to be forgiven? No. It doesn't say this in Matthew's gospel when he came up out of the water. It doesn't say anything about him praying. He had no sin to confess. This is a perfect person, our God. Well, I believe he's keeping up the communion that he had with his father before he came to earth. And he does that throughout. We have that marvelous uh, rendition of that in John chapter 17 with the fellowship. He's praying to God. He's praying about his disciples. This communion that was ongoing, he had, he was fully enter in, entering into this sacrament. We celebrate a communion, if you're here for the 830 service. Part of that sacrament of communion is to have prayer. And our minister led us in that in a specific way. He's doing this as an example. We ought to follow him. And he's doing this also as uh, one seeking the favor of the Father. Let's not ever forget, and we're going to emphasize that today, Jesus is not just, <laughs> not just God, <laughs> Okay, I don't mean to minimize that. But he is also fully man. As a man, he ought to seek the favor of God, asking for his spirit to be with him. And it is. We have here the coming of the Holy Spirit very specifically. Uh, again, uh, let me go back to this. It looks like Jesus is being humble because when all the people were baptized, that's when Jesus was baptized. He wasn't making a show of this, hey, look at me, I'm being baptized. He was setting a godly example for us. He was demonstrating the inward grace that this is an outward sign of, as our sister said here. He was demonstrating that, and that's good. He is our God, he is also man. He is looking at this today, Fully God and fully man. That's what the topic is today. Well, a third thing we see here is that the heavens were opened. Has this ever happened in scripture before? Anything like this? When Jesus was born, the angels came? <laughs> yeah, right here earlier in Luke. 
There are similar exa- examples of, of this too in other places. Uh, we have Elijah being able to see into heaven. There are other things. We also have an instance like this sort of in the Old Testament. It wasn't the firmament that was entered into, but it was the waters that were parted at the Red Sea. And we see the deliverance of God. There's also that wonderful example of the heavens opened in Acts chapter nine. What happens there? Pardon? No. Well, Saul's there. Who else? Maybe I got the wrong chapter. Maybe I need to back up to seven. We have another martyr, Stephen. And God blessed him and opened the heavens and he could see the glory there while he was being killed for the gospel. This is a, a rare thing, but it's a very significant thing. This is somewhat different. What happened when the Red Sea was parted? The Israelites saw the promised land. What's going on here? We see the promised land here. Heaven is open. This is God saying a lot of things besides, in addition to the words, this is my beloved son. He's saying, look, the glory that is being demonstrated this day, this hour, this is tremendous. A promise given here. It testifies, if you will, to the surety of God's covenant of grace. Look. This is approval from from the ultimate source, God, the eternal God and all his other attributes. Well, beyond that, verse 22, we read the Holy Spirit descends, comes down upon him. Now that, as I read this verse from Isaiah, you think of the other places where people are touched with the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of them in scripture. In Isaiah 61, one, we read, The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. In this instance, (laughs) the spirit comes in some kind of bodily form. Doesn't say he is, reminds people of what? A dove. I think that talks about the attributes, harmless, not coming with talons. It's a sign of peace. It was a sign when Noah could finally come off the ark, when a dove was released. But I believe God in the Holy Spirit came in some kind of godly godly form. It is an example of love and compassion that attends to the Holy Spirit's ministry. And Jesus is filled with that spirit to do the work of the Father. Do you remember after Paul was converted in Acts It says he was filled with the Spirit. There's an example of uh, Peter preaching in Acts. It says he was filled with the Spirit. And of course, we know the effect of Peter's preaching. Hundreds, thousands were converted by the grace of God. (laughs) This was great. This is something else. Uh, The Spirit comes. Really, we don't look for the second blessing in this church. But we ought to be asking for the Spirit to fill our lives. It's promised. If we're his children, the Spirit abides with us, in us. 
we ought to be excited about this. What the Spirit is doing is qualifying, if you will, the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is not just some street preacher here. He's been anointed as the Messiah. The Spirit comes to walk alongside here to uh, highlight this, to say the same thing. He's appointed. All right, what God the Father says, behold my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He says that to Jesus and about Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit comes into the picture. What do you have there? Pardon? Thank you. A proof for the Trinity, a word we cannot find in the Bible, but which is a, a truth that we believe as Christians. Here we have a proof text for the Trinity. The Father's involved, the Spirit's involved, the Son's involved, all three here. And Jesus is being qualified with the presence of the Spirit to be what? A priest, a prophet, and a king. There's no doubt you can think quickly how he becomes a priest. He dies for his people. He is the sacrifice, and we're gonna see that. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, Hebrews says, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I don't know if you've ever called out to God in a time of temptation, uh, but the spirit comes, ministers, because we have a priest who's been through this, who has been accepted. It works. He's also a prophet. You will see as we study the book of Luke, how many times he gives a word that is fulfilled, a word of truth, the eternal word. He alludes to it as he preaches as well. And this voice from heaven, if you will, anoints him as king as well. We're going to see that in spite of all the efforts of people and Satan, God in Jesus Christ is going to establish his kingdom. Oh, it's not the way the Jews anticipated it. Their Messiah didn't look like Jesus, but he does that on the cross. That kingdom is established in the midst of people because he is the real one, the sacrifice, the one who is not just holy God, but holy man. He was able to bear our infirmities. He's been able to tempt it as we are with victory. Hallelujah. Peter recalls something of this. We read in 2 Peter these words, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, those two words are in caps, talking about God. These are the words. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. What's Peter talking about? The Mount of Transfiguration. He heard these words when he was there, proclaiming again about Jesus Christ, the beloved son. This is affirmation before Christ even gets going, as if it were with his ministry. Affirmation from God. We don't need to check his theology. God has pronounced him. Okay, if you would, <coughs> excuse me. 
<clears throat> and we ought not to take that lightly. These are words from God that were spoken that day. These are words of an eternal truth here about this one. We have the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Father, all coming together to work out this thing called redemption. Going to be manifest physically for human beings in the physical human Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is truly human. Well, next after this, he begins his ministry. Look at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi. Do you want me to read all of these? <laughs> well, I wrote down the pronunciation in case you want me to. I have an entire sheet here with how to pronounce every one of these names. <laughs> Some of them will be familiar to you when you read this genealogy. You'll see the name Abraham in here. You'll see the name David. You'll even see Judah. <laughs> you might remember others like the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, Abraham. We get down to the son of uh, our fact said, then the son of Noah, of Lamech, Methuselah, Enoch, Jared, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's what Luke records for us. Matthew has a genealogy that is a little different and he does not end this way. Listen how, listen how Matthew's genealogy starts and this is right there at Chapter one, verse one. Now, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, now read this with me, at least think about it. The son of David, the son of Abraham. That's like a prologue to what he's gonna say. Then he says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. He goes through all of these genealogies and then in the last paragraph there, he gets down and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And Matthew's genealogy adds this verse, which is not in Luke's. For all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. I just point that out to you because there are differences between these two. Does that make them wrong? No. It is not a proof against the validity of the completeness of Scripture. Not at all. It is just different. If you will, you noticed I read in uh, the genealogy here, which direction is this genealogy in Luke going? Pardon? Joseph's side? No, it's going, it's going, uh, uh, how is it going chronologically? Okay, what about Matthew? <laughs> going the opposite way. The probability is, and most commentators agree, that one is particularly focusing on Joseph. And here in Luke, he is particularly focusing on the line of who? Mary. Now, isn't that odd? 
Jewish genealogies did not trace the line of a woman. <laughs> What's taking place here? Well, we can answer that in just a moment. But look at his pedigree here. That's what Matthew Henry calls it. There's no doubt looking at this genealogy, we have proof, further proof, that Jesus was a human being. He is in the line of all these people that are recorded throughout all of biblical history. He's there. His name is there. And we need to keep that in mind as we think of the beginning of his ministry. He's coming as the Messiah, the accepted one. And Hebrews tells us about that, which we just read. He is human. Don't overlook that. In addition to being God. Well, what do we have here? He begins his ministry. Luke gets us here. He had finished the history of the forerunner. Now he's talking about the one who is, excuse me, who has come. What does this say about Jesus? He is 30 years old. What does that mean? It, it can or cannot be significant. People disagree on this. Some other things that happened at this distinct age of 30, do you know any of them? Thank you. In the Old Testament, that's when priests began to serve at the age of 30. They went till they were 50 and then they retired from the active service in the temple to do other things. It's also the age when Joseph entered into the service of Pharaoh. It is also the age when David ascended to the throne in 2 Samuel 5. And as we said about the priests, so it has that historical significance. It's very interesting, but I can't make any great conclusions from that. Uh, another commentator, J.B. Lightfoot, says this about the situation. He says, Jesus is 29 and a half. Is he contradicting scripture? No, he's not. What he's saying is, because it was a half year, they bumped the age up to 30. They rounded off, and that happens that happens in scripture with some of the numbers. They're rounded off, especially in the Old Testament. So he lived then three and a half years after that. So he died at 32 and a half years. Three and, uh, three and a half years was the time of Christ's ministry. Some other significant things happened with that timetable. How long were the heavens shut up in Elijah's time? Three and a half years before the rains came again. In prophetical writings, uh, this happens. It's often called a time, times, and half a time, especially in prophecy, Daniel. And in the book of Revelation, you'll see that. They don't say three and a half years necessarily, but it comes to the same, a time, times, and a half a time. It's also uh, known as, in one place in Revelation, 42 months. And in another place, it's described as 1,203 score days, all of them three and a half years. I don't know that that lends any significance to what we're saying here about Jesus, but it is interesting to see. One person says this is his pedigree. That is, this isn't a dog, if you will, but he's looking at his line of descendants. Who were they? Well, we know here, and it's very interesting to look, and you ought to look at both genealogies. We're studying Luke but there are things to see in, in Matthew as well. <clears throat> you know, today there's a great interest in genealogy. You know that? <laughs> uh, you ever see these commercials on TV? There's that one that scares me about giving, giving your DNA, you know? 
I'm not sure I'm up for that. But then you can use Ancestry.com, MyHeritage.com. You, you know who else is very into genealogies? The Mormons, yes. You got any idea why? They believe in baptism for the dead. Thank you very much. That's exactly. They are meticulous because they can be baptized by proxy for people who died without that baptism. It almost sounds like a, some doctrine from the Roman Catholic Church, doesn't it? But that's what they believe. So they're very meticulous about their records. The one, they want the spirits of their dead to enter the highest heaven, so they'll be baptized for them and they'll write it down in the genealogy somewhere. So they're gonna keep good records of this. Why is it important here, this genealogy in Israel's history? Do you have any idea? Well, if you go read the book of Joshua, you see one reason. It has to do with the division of the land when they entered the promised land. Moses didn't enter because of his sin, but Joshua was, was leading them. He sat down and said, okay, this clan, this clan, this clan, here's where you go. It was also property rights were involved in Israel. You just didn't give away your property. <laughs> you didn't go poach somebody's land or anything. They were very keen about this. So they kept records. There's another reason, if you read the book of Ruth, what's going on there? Kinsman the kinsman redeemer. Who's gonna come take care of this lady Ruth? <laughs> Who, or uh, even Naomi, who's gonna do it? Well, we gotta find a kinsman redeemer. Let's look at the records here. Let's see who that would be in this genealogy. There's also a reason this was done right here in the book of Luke in chapter two. What gets Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem? To be taxed because that's the city, the tribe that Joseph was from, David. So they went to the city of David. It was important for that reason. And it was also important to serve it as a, as a priest. Why? Could anybody be a priest? What were their qualifications initially? What's the first thing? You had to be of this tribe. Right? We're going to keep track. If you're not, forget about it. Well, in the New Testament, the Jews are still identified by their tribes in some cases. Joseph here, we read in Luke, is of, the, of Joseph. Who was Paul from? Do you remember? Benjamin. He was from Benjamin. And he, when he laid out his credentials, that's one of the things that was on that list of the tribe of Benjamin. So Luke takes the line of Jesus and he goes through all of this. In verse 23, he says, uh, let me see if I'm on the right verse. When he began his ministry, this was emphatic. When he himself, in the Greek it says, began his ministry. They, we go through this to show where he was coming from and who he was. You understand in this particular case, and especially in Matthew, the writers of these gospels are pointing to Jews. Let me tell you about this Jesus, especially in Matthew. That's why I believe he starts with Abraham and David. That, those two would be most significant in the history of Israel. And they're pointed out. They're also pointed out here. He is declaring that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, 
And a central theme of Jesus' messianic ministry is that he is the son of David that was given, for instance, in Psalm 22 and other Psalms. He is that one. Abraham, because why? The covenant that God made with him in Genesis, beginning in chapter 12. He made a covenant and it extended all the way down. It was, were you in the morning early service? <laughs> what did uh, Dr. Master say about covenants? In this, throughout the scripture, God speaks to his people in covenant, in covenant relationship. Well, that's not missed here on the writer, Luke. He establishes this truth of the covenants. But Luke writes also for a little different audience. He's writing to the Gentiles as well, beginning right here with Theophilus, we saw at the beginning of this gospel. So what does he do? He doesn't stop at Abraham. He goes all the way back to who? Adam, the first. And beyond that, the son of God. Because he's saying, technically, Adam is a son of God. How did Adam start his life? He started his part of a hill of dirt, if you will. I don't think I'm being too sarcastic there. God formed him out of the dust of the earth. God was his father. And the truth is, of course, God is the father of our Jesus Christ too in the gospel of Luke. So Luke's writing from that perspective. In other words, he's talking not only to the Jew that Matthew was interested in, but to the Gentile. And he's saying, Luke that is, that this savior is for all the world. I don't mean every individual in the world, not at all. But there's no class of people that Christ did not come to, none whatsoever. <laughs> he wants us to see, especially <clears throat> when you go back to this 38th verse of chapter three, the commonality here of, of what is going on. Jesus is a common person with regard to every individual, every human being. He's just like us, except thank God he did not sin. He is human like us. He's been through. Well, Matthew goes forward, Luke goes backwards. Whereas Matthew seems focused on the line of Joseph, Luke writes about the line of Mary. There's a hiccup here in this genealogy that I think I can explain, but if I'm wrong, uh, Forgive me, but I don't think he can prove it and I'm not trying to prove to you I'm right. When we're looking at this line, we get down to uh, just right away in verse 23. Of Joseph, the son of Heli, it is believed from the commentators I read that this Heli was really the mother, the father of Mary. Now they believe that Joseph did not have a living father. And Heli, uh, I'm sorry, Heli did not have a living son. He did have Mary. So they believe he adopted, that is Heli adopted Joseph. And that is why some people believe in the parentheses we read, as was supposed, okay? It's not a matter of dogma. It's just an interesting fact and it might be able to expl explain that name in the genealogy, Heli. Well, 
We go to David to prove the messianic line. And David is in both of these lines here. Uh, one commentator says this with regard to the differences. Uh, he's pretty blunt. It is stupid to make judgment on the discrepancies. <laughs> Ignorance is ours. And that's the truth, really. What God doesn't reveal, uh, you know, we can't speak about. But you can't refute it either and say because there are differences here, the scriptures aren't true, that Jesus isn't the Messiah. That is stupid too, in the words of uh, uh, Ralph Davis. We do know that Jesus is of Mary and Joseph. He's in Joseph's line, the son of David. He's in Mary's line, the son of the daughter of David. Some reasons they may not match is because in one of these, you'll see the son of Nathan. Do you know who Nathan was? He was a son of David. He's still in the line. We just see Nathan used in one genealogy. And uh, <coughs> it is not disproving anything about the humanity of Jesus Christ. We go through these names. Luke is tracing this so that we might know for sure Jew and Gentile, this is the Messiah, all the way back to the creation of Adam. <coughs> Matthew gives us a genealogy of a king, and uh, he leads us up to Jesus as the Messiah. Joseph is the last of the royal line of David. You won't find this any other place in Scripture. And Jesus, of course, from the Old Testament, is the legal heir to that throne, the throne of David. That is somewhat important. In other words, Jesus is David's son. And those words are used in the Psalms about him. <laughs> well, the son of David. One interesting thing, ladies, in the uh, genealogy of Matthew, there's a difference that you don't see in Luke. I'm not sure exactly why it's there, but it's interesting and it's significant. It almost would make more sense to be in Luke's gospel who's dealing with the Gentiles. That is that there are four women in there that aren't mentioned in Luke's genealogy. You know who they are, of course? Rahab, definitely. Ruth, yes. Pardon? Bathsheba, there's three. The other one you might be hard-pressed to remember. Genesis 38, Tamar, a sad situation. But look at the grace of God in including these women who are not of Israel into the line of who? One's even a prostitute. Into the line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Man, it blows your mind. <laughs> Is there anyone that you can't pray for, for them to be saved? Look at God's grace here. This woman, Rahab, she wouldn't have even known about this if Israel wasn't getting ready to take over the city and send some spies in there. This woman, Ruth, she was a Moabite. She was outside the covenant because of what Moab had done in dealing with God's people way back in the Exodus. But she was brought into the fold, had a kinsman redeemer. That great scripture ought to encourage us, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I'll never forget a man, I could not, I, in a direct way, I could not 
uh, witness to my father. So I did the next best thing. I got a preacher when we lived in Baltimore to come. I said, Reverend Graham, I want you to come talk to my dad. And when he was going through salvation, one of the things my dad said was, I can't do it because I can't keep this. I cannot keep from sinning. Well, <laughs> he used verses like this where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And then in 1 Corinthians where we read, there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God will with it provide a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. And that turned my father's heart. The truth is, grace is abounding in this story. And we're gonna really see that play out in full in the life of Jesus Christ. Luke is teaching us that Jesus is a universal savior. And so Luke takes us all the way back to Adam and his genealogy. It's interesting about these four women, but what else is interesting about this is this list of people. All of them were born, they lived, they sinned, they died. Every one of them. Except, with one possible exception, who was that? And Enoch walked with God and was no more. It could be he was translated right into heaven. But this is true of every one of them. And you look around this congregation, it's true of every one of us. We have buried four of our loved ones in the past few months. We all come, we live, <coughs> we sin, we're going to die. What can we do about it? Well, that's the answer that we're going to study in Luke. We can come to Jesus. What a story. Our Savior was fully human. He is the answer to all the Old Testament covenants, all the way back to Genesis 3.15. You know, it's awful. We want peace in the world. We want less carping in our own country, screaming about, uh, you know, uh, racial inadequacies, about people uh, have prejudices against this group and that group. We all want peace, but take hope from this. <coughs> Jesus is fulfilling Genesis 3.15. We have, this battle's gonna go on all the way to when God calls it quits. So it's kind of an encouragement in a perverse way. Jesus hasn't quit the fight. God hasn't stopped saving Yes, we have battles, but the truth is we're going to eventually win if we're on the side of the Savior. Not that that's the name of the game. The name of the game is, have you been saved? Are you following this one who has the victory? All throughout the life of Christ that we're going to study here, we see places where he seems to lose. I mean, right at the beginning here, we're going to see that. <coughs> Our Savior was fully human, but he was that so he could be the acceptable sacrifice. Aren't you glad? <laughs> I certainly am. He came, he lived, he didn't sin and die. He did die. He skipped that. He lived the perfect life. And uh, so it's that life and ministry we're gonna continue to study as we go forward. Any questions or comments? Any arguments about the genealogy? <laughs> I give up. I don't know how to prove some of these people. Uh, but anyhow, I think it's acceptable and I think it's the inspired word of God. Brother Paul, could you dismiss us in prayer, please?
Oh, great, merciful Father in heaven, we thank you for the lessons that we have learned today, both in Sunday school and in worship. Please guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Keep us focused on you throughout this week ahead. In Jesus' name.